0: But along with those good things, you know, there are sometimes discouraging things. And we learned uh, during the seminar about that, looking at the book of Acts, that, you know, God blesses, but there are also difficulties, and God is faithful through all of it. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And the title of the message this morning is Lost While Living at the Father's house, Luke chapter 15. There's a famous painting by Rembrandt, and uh, if you want to look it up later on Google, you can do that. Uh, It is about the prodigal son. I think the name is The Return of the Prodigal, so that's what you would look up. And as you look at the painting, you'll see that Rembrandt is a master of using color, light, and darkness. The painting is mostly dark, but you see standing out the figure of a distinguished but kind of hunched over old man. Putting his arms around a bedraggled young man. He really doesn't look very good. He looks like something the dog might have dragged in. He is barefoot. Uh, His head has been shaved, he's dirty, but the father has his arms around him. And then off to the side, maybe later on, you notice that there's another person. There's a fashionable-looking man just kind of standing aloof from this whole scene and really is a good picture of what is going on in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal. Well, this morning, let's take a look, first of all, at the context of this story, which we find in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Why did Jesus tell the story of the prodigal son? Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, we read, Then drew near unto him, that is, unto Jesus, all the publicans and sinners, for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners." and eateth with them. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. I thank you, Father, for the blessing it has been to lift our voices and songs that glorify your name. Father, it is a privilege to know you, a privilege to worship you, a blessing to gather together with fellow believers. I thank you, Father, for this church. And I thank you, Father, for for the many blessings that you've given to us. I thank you, Father, for your faithfulness through all situations. Father, I pray now that we will look unto your word, and I pray, Father, that you will help us to see the truths that we need, that you will speak to us by your Holy Spirit, and that we will be drawn near to you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your salvation through Christ. I pray that we will be that we will see him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see here, setting the context of the story of the prodigal son, that there were publicans who were tax collectors and sinners that were coming to Jesus to hear him. Why were these publicans and these sinners attracted to Jesus? I think it was because Jesus showed them that there was hope, even for them. These people were despised in their culture. Tax collectors were Jewish people that were basically working for the Romans, collecting taxes from their own people. They were seen as traitors. They were hated. And perhaps they even deserved it a little bit, because not only did they collect taxes, but they collected extra and pocketed The extra. And they really were normally very rich people. You could think of Zacchaeus. And Jesus, though, showed them that there was hope for them too. In fact, we can look at the story of Zacchaeus just briefly, turning over a few pages to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 and verse 5. Luke chapter 19, Jesus is in is passing through Jericho in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. Zacchaeus, you know the story. I'm sure you learned it in Sunday school. He was a wee little man. He was short, and he wanted to see Jesus. There was something about Jesus that drew him. He wanted to see this man that everyone was talking about. Now, he had cheated a lot of people, he had done a lot of bad things, but he wanted to see Jesus, so he climbed up in that tree. Jesus then looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. This would have been shocking, Jesus eating at the house of an infamous man like Zacchaeus. I mean, nobody liked him. He was a tax collector. He was a traitor. He cheated people. And he hasn't even changed yet. You know, he's still a rotten person. But he's interested in Jesus. His heart is drawn to Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Well, everybody was shocked at this. And Jesus then says in verses 9 and 10. This day is salvation come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus has a change of heart. He repents. He says that he is going to pay back all the people that he cheated. He's going to give half of his goods to the poor. And Jesus says salvation is come to this house. There's also earlier in Luke the account of a sinful woman who came to Jesus. We can see this in chapter 7. We see Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and we also see a sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. Jesus here was invited to the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And Jesus went to Pharisees' houses as well. He went to Simon's house to eat with him. But while he was there, this woman, who was well known as a sinful person, came and she is weeping. She is anointing Jesus' feet. Just imagine how uncomfortable this would have been. I mean, she wasn't invited to dinner, she just comes in and starts anointing Jesus' feet, weeping. And look at what the Pharisee thinks about this in verse 39. Now the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. He's starting to doubt that Jesus really is a prophet, because... How would Jesus allow this to happen? He would know her background. He would know what kind of person she is, if he were really a prophet. And of course, he would say, get out of here. Don't touch me. You are a sinful person. You are going to contaminate me. I'm pure. You're sinful. Leave. But Jesus then tells a story about forgiveness one who is forgiven a little, one is forgiven much. And he asks the Pharisee, who will love more? And he says, well, the one who is forgiven much. And Jesus tells him that he answered correctly. And so he then says in verse 47, Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said to her, Thy sins are forgiven. As we look in the book of Luke, I think we can see why sinners and tax collectors were attracted to Jesus. They wanted to come to him because he showed them that the message he preached was for them too. Do the sinful, do the sinful people in our neighborhoods know that the message we preach is for them also. It's easy, I think, for us as Christians to become rather unbalanced in our treatment of sinners. On one side, some people justify their sin, acting as if sin is really not a big deal. But the cross shows us that sin is a big problem. We could ask the question, when we sin, are we hurting ourselves or hurting God? I think that's a good question, and we can think about it. And we can think about this question as well. What does God think about us when we sin? That's another good question that we'll keep in mind throughout this message. Now, on the other extreme, there are those who condemn sinners and see them as people who are lower, and we as people who are higher. We see them as less worthy of God's love. But the problem is, when we do this, we have forgotten where we were before God saved us. It's as if we think that the sins God saved us from were rather inconsequential compared to the sinners, the sins of the sinners that we prefer to despise. We we forget that it is only God's grace that makes a difference between us and them. And Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15, that it was God's grace that makes a difference in our lives. But for the grace of God, we could be just in the place of that sinner. So how did the Pharisees and scribes treat the sinners who came to Jesus? Looking back, at the context for our, of, of the, par, the parable of the lost son, looking again at Luke chapter 15, we see that they were despising them. Again, in Luke 15 and verse 2, the Pharisees murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. They thought that Jesus should not do that. He should not receive them, and he definitely shouldn't eat with them. In Middle Eastern culture, eating with someone was a significant thing, probably more so than it is for American culture. You know, you might eat with a coworker, even if you don't really like that coworker. But in the Middle East, when you eat with something, you're making a statement. You're saying, I like this person. You are one of my friends. You are my people. And if you didn't like people, you would not eat with them. In fact, Jewish people, it was against the law for them to eat with a Gentile. They might do business with them, of course, washing their hands afterward to make sure no contamination had been transferred, but they would not eat with Gentiles. In fact, you may remember Peter going to the house of Cornelius. Coming back, his Jewish friend said, what were you doing? going to the house of Gentiles, eating with them. Don't you know they're unclean? And then he tells them why he did it. Um, Table fellowship was very intimate, uh, sharing the same food. That was a, a big statement in Jesus' culture. And so it was shocking that Jesus would eat with sinners, saying, these are my people. I and willing to share food with them. It's like he was saying, these are my friends. Wow, why would you do that? I think of Matthew, the tax collector, when he became a follower of Jesus. This is also in the book of Luke, chapter 5. Matthew, or also known as Levi, becomes a follower of Jesus, Jesus invited him, although he was a tax collector. And I almost wonder what Peter and James and John thought about that. I mean, hey, do we really want an ex-tax collector joining our group of disciples? But Jesus said, follow me, and he did. And we see in Luke 5 and verse 29, Levi, the tax collector, made him a great feast in his own house, And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Again, they're asking this question. It was something that happened more than once. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. We see Jesus' balanced treatment. He doesn't shun the sinners, but he is coming to call them to repentance. He is coming to save them from their sin. And so it was in this context that Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. It seems to be a story with three parts. First of all, we have the story of a sheep that is lost Search is made, and when it is found, there is rejoicing. A coin is lost. Search is made, and when it is found, there is rejoicing. And then we come to part three, a lost son. This part of the story has the most development. And so let's take a look at the characters in this story. We've looked at the context. Now let's look at the characters in this story. Looking back at Luke 15, Now at verse uh, verse 11, Jesus is speaking, and he said, a certain man had two sons. Here we have our introduction to the characters. There is a man, a father, who has two sons, an older son and a younger son. And if you have older and younger children, or maybe you are an older or younger child, You know the dynamics that can go on in a family between older and younger siblings. Let's look first of all at the younger son, verse 12. Now, as we're introduced to this young man, we may start to dislike him because he has what we would call an attitude. Look at what he says in verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, father, Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. I mean, what an attitude. He's saying to his dad, Dad, I want my inheritance, and I'm not willing to wait for you to die. Just give it to me right now, because I'm sick of living in this house. Now, the surprising thing is the father actually does it. He, I don't know if he had to sell some of his property He probably had a large farm. He might have had to sell off part of the farm. Now, the younger man would have received a smaller inheritance because the way things went back then, the older son received a bigger share. The younger son received a smaller share. The thinking was that the older son had more responsibilities. If anyone in the family needed help, the older son would be responsible. Well, this younger son is definitely not the responsible kind of person. The father divides unto them his living. He gives the younger son, perhaps in some gold and silver coins, his portion of the inheritance. And look what he does with it. Verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. This young man can't wait to get away from mom and dad, get away from that that home where he was raised. He didn't appreciate the sacrifices his mom and dad made. He didn't appreciate the fact that when his dad gave him that money, that represented his dad's life. His dad had worked for that, labored for that over years. And what does the son do with it? He wastes it. He could have taken that money and started a business. He could have invested it in something. But no. He just wastes it. Maybe if you know if they'd had sports cars back then, he would have bought a nice red sports car. And you know, if they had casinos back then, I'm sure they had gambling. I've read about gambling in this time period. So I'm sure he did some gambling. And I'm sure he bought some nice clothes. I mean, he had so much money, he didn't know what to do with it. We see he is a very irresponsible young man. And we see that he doesn't appreciate everything he had with his mom and dad. He doesn't appreciate all the things they did with him. He doesn't appreciate the relationship he once had with them. He just wants to get far away from all of that. Well, then things take a turn, because in verse 14, we read, And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. He hadn't expected this. The money ran out, and there's a famine, and now he's starting to suffer. So what does he do? He gets a job. But it's not a very good job. Look at verse 15. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, for a good Jewish boy, feeding pigs is about the lowest position you could have. I guess for us, the equivalent would be maybe someone who cleans porta-potties. You know, it's just nasty, dirty, dirty. That's the kind of job he had, the job that nobody else wants to do. Remember, he's in a far country, so he's a foreigner there. As long as he had money, he could live, you know, the high life. But now, he's just doing the jobs that no one else wants to do. And it seems like he doesn't even get paid very well for doing this dirty job. You know, I know on... uh, I think there's a channel that has, you know, dirty jobs. Well, this is not a glamorous dirty job. Nobody's going to want to make a video of this. Verse 16 says, And he would fain have filled his belly with the hus that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. He's so hungry, he wants to eat the pig's food. They're eating these carob pods. That was a common food given to animals. And sometimes poor people would eat them. He wants to eat the pig's food. He's so hungry. It appears like this is really a a bad job, a dead-end job. And so while he's in this situation, he has hit the bottom. And in a way, maybe that's good. Sometimes it isn't until you and I hit the bottom that we start to look up and we realize what we had. And we took it for granted. Verse 17, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? Perhaps for the first time in his life, he is gaining an appreciation of what he had with his father. He's appreciating his father. As a man who is fair, who treats his workers well, he probably never gave a second thought to the situation of all the servants at his father's farm and business. He didn't think at all about it. But now he's thinking about home. He's thinking about his dad and how his dad treated the workers really well. He gave them plenty of food. And he's wishing he was back home. He's wishing he was working for his dad, because he knows how his dad treats his workers. And so he has a change of heart. He decides that he wants to go back home. But he realizes that things probably cannot be the way they were. He has burned his bridges behind him. He can't just go back to life the way it used to be. And so look at what he plans, verse 18. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Well, this young man has realized some important things. He recognizes his sin, that he has sinned against God, and against his father. Recognizing that is very important. If he hadn't recognized that, I don't think what happens next would turn out the way it does. But he he repents. He recognizes what he has done wrong, and he wants to go back. But he feels like he's unworthy to be a son. He just wants to be a servant, to work for his father. Because he knows that his father will treat him, treats all of his workers well. And he hopes that his father will treat him well as also. And so we see the young man making this decision. He has a new appreciation for his father. A situation that once seemed intolerable being home with his father is now appealing to him. I think it's necessary for us to recognize our true condition before we can receive the gift of reconciliation and salvation. And so that's why it's important that this young man recognizes his condition and what he has done before he goes back. So the young man is on his way home. Now let's turn our attention to the father. What kind of a person is he? At the beginning, maybe we had the idea that he was perhaps a really controlling person, and that's why the son wanted to get away. But now we see that he appears fairly generous because the son knows how well he treats his workers. Well, let's take a look at the father. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. What a description of the father. While the son was a great way off, he sees him. It's it's as if the father is looking for his son. Now, for many families, if a son had done what this young man had done, the father would have considered him dead, written him off, and never spoken or talked about him again. Probably tried not even to think about him again. But it appears this father is different. While the son is a great way off, he sees him. Perhaps he's been looking for him for days, weeks, months. And what does he do when he sees his son? He doesn't fold his arms and say, oh, there comes that no good son of mine. No, He's filled with compassion. Notice the verbs here that we see in verse 20. His father saw him. He had compassion. And then he ran. This would have been very surprising for a dignified elderly gentleman in Israel. They never ran everywhere. But this older man runs to meet his son. And once he gets to his son, he falls on his neck. He embraces him. He kisses him. This son that has been so disrespectful, who has wasted his money. This son who is dirty and bedraggled. He doesn't say, go clean yourself up, and then I'll give you a hug. No. While he's there, he hugs him and welcomes him. What a picture of this father. He was willing to be undignified. He was willing to show unconditional love. And I think this, for us, can be a picture of what God is like. I think that's how Jesus intended it. In Romans 5.8, we read that God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his love to us. Commendeth means to display like you would take a diamond and put it on a velvet background just to show how beautiful it is. God puts his love on display in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, then the son starts his prepared speech. And in verse 21, the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven And in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father interrupts this speech. And what does the father say? But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. We see his generosity. He spares no expense. The son is unworthy of any of this. But isn't that what grace is all about? We aren't worthy. We don't deserve it. But we receive these precious gifts anyway. Well, we've looked at the younger son. We've looked at the father. But now there's one more person in the story we need to look at. The older brother. Verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field. Picture him there. He's been working all day, sweating, working on the farm. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He's confused. I didn't know there was going to be a party today. It's not a holiday. What's going on? I'm sure usually they plan to party you know, days in advance, and he would have known. What's going on? And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And how does the older brother React to this. And he was angry and would not go in. He refuses to go into the party. So what happens? The father comes out to him. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this, thy son, was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. The attitude of the older brother is, this isn't fair. And if you're a parent and have older and younger children, you've probably heard that before. If if you're an older sibling, maybe you've said that before. It's not fair. Look at all the things this younger brother has done and look how you've treated him look at me the older brother says I have never transgressed your commandment at any time these many years do I serve thee the word there for serve could also be translated that he was slaving away it comes from the word slave you know he's just slaving away working at the farm and The father never gave him a party, never even gave him a goat, and yet he kills the fatted calf for this useless, worthless brother that wasted everything. It's not fair. I think we see here in the two brothers two types of relationship with God. With the younger brother, we see the relationship that Where we want God to give us things. That God will give us all the things we want. Give me, give me, give me. And the attitude is, what can I get from God? Now for the older brother, maybe a little bit more mature attitude. Serving God. What can I do for God? I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. But still, notice his mindset is, well, what do I get in return? I'm doing all these things for you, and what do I get out of it? Both sons miss, are missing something important. They are not recognizing the most valuable thing they can receive is not money from their dad, is not a reward for good behavior, but simply enjoying the privilege of having a relationship with their father. Sometimes in life, we miss that until we're at the funeral and we say, wow, I wish I'd spent more time with dad or with mom, but now it's too late. I can't enjoy that relationship. These younger brothers, both of them missed that. The younger brother couldn't wait to get away from his dad. And the older brother... He's like, what do I get out of it? What about us in our relationship with God? For us, is God just a means of getting what we want? Having enough money, a happy life, good family? You know, we do what God wants us to do, so he gives us what we want to have. Are we serving God faithfully? Not because we love him and know him, but because we hope he's going to reward us with some blessings that we really, really want. What is it that we desire more than anything else? If it's anything other than God, I submit to you that it's a wrong desire. If we are just serving God to get something other than God, then really that's the God that we're serving, not the true God. And you see the gospel that we preach. Sometimes we think of it as the gospel is a way of getting to heaven, you know, getting people saved so they can go to heaven. That's not completely wrong, but it's a little misguided, because really, the gospel is not about getting to heaven, where the streets are of gold and we'll have a mansion and you know everything we ever wanted. No, the gospel is about getting people to God and wherever God is that's heaven and really the new Jerusalem is going to be here on earth not going to be somewhere up in the sky but we will be with God that's what makes it heaven in Revelation we read what is the conclusion of the whole biblical account it's God dwelling with us that's what it's all about and so, in conclusion, I have a few questions for us to consider. Which son do you resemble more? The younger son or the older son? Secondly, what is our functioning image of God? How do we picture God? I think sometimes we picture God more like the older brother, you know, condemning and saying, You are unwelcome. And unworthy. Sometimes we hear that voice speaking to us. You're not really welcome here. You are not worthy. But that's not God. That's the older brother. Picture, do we really picture God as running to meet a repentant son, even while he still is unworthy and dirty, embracing him, saying, I am so glad you have come home. We don't have to clean ourselves up to be accepted by God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you are here and you are lost and see your need of salvation, don't try to clean yourself up. Come to God, because salvation is not something we ever could earn. It's a gift by God's grace. Through faith in Jesus, because he did all that was necessary for our salvation. In the end, I think we see Jesus eating with sinners, welcoming tax collectors, and we see that he is our model for understanding God. One final scripture, John chapter 1, verse 18, tells us no man hath seen God at any time. Some people may say, God is like this, Other people may say, God is like that. But no one's seen God. But the only begotten Son, who's that? That's Jesus. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, closer to God than anyone. He's in his bosom. He hath declared him. Jesus, God in the flesh, shows us what the Father is like. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus.